And then the students felt that uh, this education that we're getting is just shoehorning us into servicing power structure to make a living. And on one hand, I don't think people had a problem with making a living, but the other hand, they felt that they were abandoning, why should they abandon the knowledge of themselves? Because in this country, black people, uh, and in Africa, black people are taught everybody's history except their own. i say that again. We're taught everybody's history except our own. And what we are taught by the people who hate us is that our history begins in slavery. When in fact, the history of African people is a very long one and glorious one, and slavery happens to be an interruption of that history. So, there were, not all of the students at Tuskegee felt this way, but there were enough who felt that these were very important issues that should be combined when you look at the totality of an educated black person. So that's why they came up with several demands that had to do with justice and had to do with the relevancy of the curriculum. And that's why in all of the colleges that had that uproar around this time, most of those colleges, yes, were understandably upset about the Vietnam War because it affected the young men. Tuskegee was the only college that dealt with the cognitive issues of the relevance and justice about learning the fullness of ourselves. You just heard famous author, photographer, speaker, and Tuskegee Institute alum Chester Higgins Jr. recalling the injustices students faced that led to a student uprising at the Tuskegee Institute, now called Tuskegee University, located in Tuskegee, Alabama. February is Black History Month, and we all know Black history is 365 days a year. But what better way to celebrate than by focusing on one of the most famous higher institutions in America, Tuskegee University. Its history runs deep from its founder, scholar, Booker T. Washington, famous scientists like George Washington Carver, the valiant heroes from World War II, the Tuskegee Airmen, and the infamous Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment. But there's another history that has been overlooked until now. Dr. Brian Jones, the director for the Center for Educators in Schools at the New York Public Library, his book, The Tuskegee Student Uprising, A History, highlights the college students as unsung heroes who helped to change the landscape of higher education. Chester Higgins Jr. being one of them. How can a book about a black student uprising teach us how progress for equality does not have to be a national movement, but a small one that can also lead to a more progressive society? Let's find out. I'm Miss Mack, and this is Hall Pass Break. As you listen to the episode, I recorded in a different location from Dr. Jones, so our sounds will be different. The periods of interludes were recorded at the Strand Bookstore in Manhattan as part of Dr. Brian Jones' book release tour. 
During some of the interviews, you may hear some background noise. I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time out to actually connect with me. Um, so if you could just start by like introducing yourself, your name, and then your role at the New York Public Library. Sure. Uh, my name is Brian Jones. I'm the director of a new initiative at the New York Public Library called the Center for Educators in Schools, which aspires to make all of the incredible resources of the library easily available and useful to teachers and to educators of many different types. I know you started out as an elementary school teacher before you decided to go into this big role. I mean, we'll transition to there, but if you could talk about what made you decide to become an elementary school teacher and how um, it was for you? I was, um, you know, I often had worked as an educator in like summer camps and things like that when I was growing up. And I, on my mother's side, I come from a long line of educators. I remember going to one of my great aunts, like 90th birthday party in Detroit. And, you know, it was just like in this hall that was filled with people from the town. And it seemed like she had taught everyone in the room. So I just always had this kind of reverence for educators and felt that it was a job that I was drawn to. And, but I knew that I had a lot of friends who were teachers uh, when I moved to New York in 2001. And I saw how hard they worked and how passionate they were and how challenging the job was. So I was intimidated, to be honest with you. I, I didn't know if I could hack it. And so I finally just got to a point in my life where I was ready to take the plunge and in 2003. Um, and so I went to school at um, City College of New York, uh, got myself hired at an elementary school in central Harlem and taught for eight years in Harlem. And then a ninth year, my last year as a classroom teacher was in downtown Brooklyn. How it was for me was incredible because in addition to the communities of the school, the, I taught in three different schools. And in addition to those school, being a part of those school communities and my colleagues and the kids and their parents, I was also part of a citywide um, and even beyond the city, but starting citywide community of educators who also saw themselves as activists, um, both inside the classroom and outside the classroom. And I learned so much from them and drew so much strength and courage from them and so many ideas from them. Uh, and that really informed my teaching um, and was one of the things that sustained me, I think, in the profession and still does. But then you went to, you know, pursue your PhD. So talk about that process and that journey to do so. Yeah, I, while I was an elementary school teacher, I, I started doing a lot of writing about um, what I saw as a big attack on public education, the effort of privatization and charter schools and school closures and co-locations. And I was organizing into, in defense of public education as I saw it. And I got the idea, I wrote a book chapter, and that felt like a huge accomplishment. Like I couldn't believe I had, was at, published as a you know, chapter in a book. Um, and I'm still very proud of that chapter, actually. And, um, but it gave me the idea and the ambition that, you know, what if I could write a whole book? Like, what if I could work out my ideas in a longer format. And so I thought that going to do a PhD would be 
it would be a structure that would help me do that. It would help me take on that challenge because I couldn't even finish unless I had finished a, a book length project. Um, so what really held me back was obviously money. I mean, I was nine years into teaching and so nobody wants to walk away from that kind of a salary to go be a graduate student full time. But I was fortunate to have friends um, and colleagues who helped me um, put together a kind of package of an award from the CUNY Graduate Center, plus some uh, external foundation fu funding, frankly, that made it possible for me to, as a parent, uh, to go be a doctoral student full time. Wow. So then that led you to become the associate director of the uh, education at the Schoenberg. So how did you switch from elementary school teacher PhD student to then the director at one of the most prestigious libraries and research centers in the world. Yeah, it was, yeah, that was really an amazing stroke of luck. Um, it, it's all due to the fact that my advisor thought that I would be a good fit for the Schomburg Scholars in Residence program. It's mostly for people who have finished their PhDs and are working on books. Um, and some people who are non-academic writers are also, some non-academic writers are also in the mix. But every year they set aside one slot for a PhD student working on a dissertation at the CUNY Graduate Center. And so my story was a Black history story. And so I needed the resources of the Schomburg Center um, to continue to work on it. And I needed more funding. So for my sixth year and final year as a graduate student, I actually did at the Schomburg Center. And that was a transformative experience. I'd been in the building before, but I'd never deeply spent time in the building like that. And suddenly I was in the building every day and with colleagues and speaking to the incredible librarians and curators who were there. I mean, it was just a transformative experience. Um, I was a kid in a candy store and just thinking, what if I could just stay here? I mean, is there just some way that I could, I was fantasizing, like, could I just stay at the Schomburg Center? Um, and so on a lark, I just looked on their website and sure enough, they were hiring an associate director of education. And I just thought, oh my gosh, wow, this could really put together all the things for me. This is a black history position. It's in education. I'm already here. They've already met me and know me. So, um, you know, I, I started asking around, could I apply for this? And I was lucky to get the position. I mean, extremely lucky. And so I transitioned from defending my PhD, moving out of the Scholars Center and moving up into the management wing, basically of the Schomburg Center, like you're saying, into part of a team of leadership of, of a world-class research center in Black history. If your listeners haven't gone, let me just say the Schomburg Center has public exhibits. You can just wander into the building and look around. Uh, you don't have to have an appointment. Um, you can just kind of, you know, dip your toe in and begin to look around. But the more you go and the more you start to scratch the surface and realize what's there freely available to you with your New York Public Library card, uh, the more you'll, you'll come back again and again. Now you are kind of part of history with uh, the New York Public Library, right? So you are the uh, co-director or no director of the educators and schools. 
So what is that type of work through the library system? And what do teachers need to know about resources or how this works for them? Yeah, so basically, um, I, you know, I was doing, I was at the Schomburg Center, really focused on trying to figure out how to make the resources of the Schomburg Center accessible and available to teachers. Um, we did NEH Summer Institutes for Teachers. And so there's some of the work that I started at Schomburg is ongoing. But the library essentially uh, offered me a, 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 an opportunity that as hard as it was to step away from the Schomburg Center, it was a really uh, unique opportunity that uh, you know, I was thrilled to accept. And that is the opportunity to take that work and basically expand it to the whole of the New York Public Library. So I am the first director of a new thing called the Center for Educators and Schools. Um, I'm the inaugural director of it. Um, and it's built on the model of the kind of work I was doing at the Schomburg Center. So I console myself with the idea that I still get to work with the Schomburg Center, even though I'm no longer based there. So the New York Public Library um, has incredible archives. And a big part of my task is to um, get those archives, render them useful for teachers. So we do that in a few different ways. One, of course, we're building curriculum and curricular units. Um, and, you know, you can't teach what you don't know. And it's we, we're not just putting things on a website as like messages in a bottle. We're, we also have a team of people who create workshops and experiences. So you can come in and learn and ask questions and um, see what it's like to work with an image or a document or something from the archives before you turn around and teach with it. Um, and then we also do other kinds of experiences for educators, just bringing in authors who have new curricular ideas or points, important points of view to share in the field, take up controversies in the field of education. So we're kind of creating a a professional home for educators, a place you can go to have fun, to meet people from other schools, um, sometimes earn credit towards your license, and sometimes grab hold of things that we hope you could, will find actually useful in your classroom. We did a back to school comedy night for teachers, uh, where all the comedians were teachers or former teachers. Uh, you know, so sometimes we're just building community um, and trying to be a source of strength and inspiration for educators in New York and beyond. So my name is Robert Robinson <laughs> and um, I know Brian Jones because we actually came through the same graduate program, same advisor. Um, and yeah, he basically helped me to kind of carve out my academic path in a lot of ways. Yeah, now I'm trying to convert the dissertation to a book. And even reading his book has helped me to like reformulate this wow. chapter I've been struggling with for four years. So um, it's funny that like even beyond school, like beyond our school life, he still is the big brother teaching me the way, yeah. like directly and indirectly. <laughs> so, so and what is your focus on? So I'm writing a history of the Black Panther Party's Oakland Community School. So I also look at the history of black education and I look through the long arc, like from basically from the antebellum period forward, but I focus specifically on black power. So we have a lot in common, but um, I also look at black queer lives and pedagogy. So what's the history of black education 
through educators who are either out or in the closet and what can we glean from their examples or their frustrations. And so the personal is political and pedagogical, so how is an embodied practice? How does who I am show up whether or not I'm proclaiming who I am? I feel like I want to do a whole interview with you, but again, this is all about Dr. Jones. So tell me, why do you think it's important for educators to Gosh. read it? Mm, I was just telling my friend who's a teacher educator, so um, um, that I think the beauty of this book is looking through the students' example, how they're organizing, so much of what they learn is beyond the campus. It's who they are in the community. So they went out there, really think they were going to school the rest of the community, and the community schooled them. And this is a story that like connects the the local context with the history of black like like striving, but also with like the long arc of like black possibility when we are organized as students, when we're in communication with our you know our elders. Yeah, I was thinking back to Chancellor's Day when you had Nicole Hannah-Jones there and the Chancellor, uh, David Banks himself. And even that um, whole day was just a, a type of community. But you don't stop there. So you are, I seem like a man that is just determined to have so many titles, author as well. So talk about the book called Tuskegee Student Uprising, A History. And what made you want to research this topic? And why do you think it's important for anyone to read? Uh, thank you for this question. Um, and it tells the story of a student movement at the nation's arguably most important historically, one of certainly most important historically Black colleges, Tuskegee University in Tuskegee, Alabama. Um, my father is an alum of Tuskegee. And I got interested in Tuskegee actually while I was an elementary school teacher in Harlem because I got interested in the history of Black education. It seemed to me that Black people and Black students in particular seemed to be at the core of the kind of emotional and political appeals that were being made by the privatization movement. And so I thought, oh, this is interesting. Why are these really powerful forces so interested in using appeals to uh, about the education of black students in this particular way to attack public education and so i tried to i started kind of digging back into the historical patterns of black education and i arrived um, my reading brought me to tuskegee and particularly a, a book by james anderson that everybody should read called the education of blacks in the south and what anderson lays out is that after the Civil War, basically a revolution in many ways led by Black people who rose up, took up arms ultimately, and overthrew the slaveocracy, that like in revolutions we, saw, we see all over the world, just like any other revolution you, look, you can look at in, in history, that one of the things people rising up want is access to wider horizons of education for themselves and for their children. Black people are no different. Um, du Bois says in his incredible book, Black Reconstruction, that public education for all at the public expense, like free public education in the South was a Negro idea. It was Black people when they got in charge of things, when they got elected to state office in the South, 
immediately set to work setting up schools that everybody could go to. So there's a whole bunch of white people who went to school for the first time in the South because of Black leadership on that front. And, you know, we had long been denied access to education in this country. So, um, you know, if you keep something from people, they start to think, well, maybe it's important. So um, I was reading about this, learning. I mean, that was just reading that book by James Anderson really opened my eyes and was, um, I found a lot of resonance with what the dynamics I saw that I was living through as a teacher in Harlem. But then everywhere you start, you start reading all the books about Tuskegee and Booker T and Hampton and industrial education, read all those books. And I think you'll agree with me that there is a widespread pattern in those books of student protest. It's everywhere. It's all over the books. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I should write a book about like late 19th century, early 20th century student uprisings at Tuskegee, maybe Hampton and Tuskegee. Like I didn't know. And so I started talking about this with my dad, and he's like, let's take a road trip. 2014, we get in the car, we drove to Alabama, and he and I together, he was like my research assistant, but I'll tell you, what I found there in the archives was not that much. I mean, you could definitely not write a dissertation. I almost burst into tears. I was like, oh my God, we came all this way, and there's there's like three three mentions of, of this. Um. But then one of the librarians there, one of the archivists pulled out, said, well, if you're interested in student protest, I think I have something to show you. She goes away. She comes back with this giant leather bound volume of the student newspaper in the 1960s. So I'm looking at it with my dad and he graduated in 61. So, you know, that's right when things started picking up. He didn't he didn't know anything about this and neither did I. But we're looking through the pages of the student newspaper together. And there it is you know, students participate in all these civil rights protests and demonstrations off campus. Then they're protesting on campus. Us, they're getting involved with SNCC and they're in Lowndes County. They're in Lowndes County campaigning for that Black Panther Party. They are the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. Then a student activist, a Tuskegee student activist was murdered in an off-campus incident. And the, that radicalized the students. And then you see them starting to make even more demands of the administration. They want black studies. They want more things to change. And then you see they decide to take the board of trustees hostage. They, they basically shut down the school, take over the board of trustees meeting, surround the building, and they present their demands to transform Tuskegee into a black university. And the governor calls in the Alabama National Guard. This is after the massacre in Orangeburg, and this is just two days after King's assassination, Dr. King's assassination in Memphis. And thankfully, there is not bloodshed that day, but the administration shuts the school down for two weeks, dismisses all the students. You're no longer students here. You each individually have to reapply and as an attempt to try to weed out the radicals. So my dad was just pole-axed. I mean, he hit, you know, we were like jaws on the floor. Nobody associates Tuskegee with this kind of explosive, radical, militant student movement. Like, that's not, we know about the syphilis study, we know about the Tuskegee Airmen, you know about George Washington Carver, you know about Booker T. Washington, but nobody associates Tuskegee with this really, really explosive, radical, and influential uh, student movement. And so I just thought like, oh my God, like, this is a huge story. So I went, you know, I came home and started telling people about it. My professors, like, you know, professional historians, 
nobody knew anything about this. <laughs> Everybody was in the dark. And, and then I started interviewing people. And one of the first people I interviewed was Chester Higgins Jr. He is a Tuskegee grad who uh, is a world famous photographer. I mean, he is a globally renowned photographer of the African diaspora. He learned photography in that last, in his like last year at Tuskegee. And when I went to his home in Brooklyn, he handed me this photograph, this gorgeous photograph. And sure enough, and he said, you know, and it was a photograph of a protest, the civil rights protest at Tuskegee. And he said, there's your cover. And sure enough, that's the cover of the book. <laughs> and, uh, and so this was my dissertation, which ended up being a kind of first draft, a really, really rough first draft of the book. I was grateful to have the chance to like, you know, write that really rough draft and, and get a PhD for doing that. And then, um, you know, as soon as I graduated, started mulling what it would mean to, you know, got advice from a lot of people about uh, what it would mean to transform it into a book. And I'm really grateful uh, primarily to Ashley Farmer, who uh, really helped me move through the process of, of making a book proposal and figuring out how to re not fully reorganize it, but rewrite it in a way that would make it a, a viable book. So I'm Barbara Jones, and I happen to know Brian Jones because he is my son. <laughs> and, and I'm very proud of him. But I, I thought your question was such a wonderful one about how you teach children this. And I thought Brian gave a very good answer about not just jumping to because it is very hard. But I read where children who learn to negotiate at a young age are more successful with adults, are more successful. And that's not exactly the answer to your question, but I think the way that you could do that is to just have that idea and then translate to the students appropriately for their age. Just teach them that they need to speak up. When they have a thought, don't be afraid to say that thought or to present that thought. And if they don't agree with something, there's a way to be respectful about it. Now I'm thinking about, because it is a book written by a college uh, or you know college level and by a PhD person, I wonder how teachers at my level who teach at the high school, even elementary school, could tie it into their curriculum. I mean, I'm kind of thinking about the more student protests and the interview side, but tell us, tell me what you think, how it could be taught. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Actually, a few years ago, an elementary school teacher, a friend of mine, um, asked me to come into her classroom and do a presentation on it um, when I was still doing the research. And basically what I did was I did pretty much the same presentation I was doing at like academic conferences where I just showed photos. I don't like to show text as much as possible. I just like to show photos. So I showed the historic photos. There's so many gorgeous photos of the protests by Chester Higgins and others. Um, and just kind of told the story. And, but you know, if you, I think there's a way kids understand that what's going on here is that young people are kind of saying there's something wrong and then they're getting organized and they're trying to challenge it. And there's a way in which they're doing that off campus. And we see young people doing that. The things about, you know, gun safety or like LGBTQ rights, like name your issue. Young people are on it in, on off campus issues. And then there's a way in which they turn their attention to the campus and to, and say that actually something in the school needs to change. 
Um, and I think we see that we see high school students organizing themselves around things that they think need to change um, in school as well. So I think it's intelligible just on that level that actually there's a history of young people trying to make change off campus and trying to make change on campus. But there's something core that's still with us, that's still going on. And that is that young people often become sensitive or feel a sensitivity to an injustice in a way that sometimes their elders don't uh, always. And they sometimes, and therefore they push and they have a kind of level of impatience with the slow pace of change uh, that people try to impose on them. And sometimes when they gain enough confidence and momentum, they're able to win. I agree that showing them images and just having people see it will definitely resonate with them. So I wonder if you don't mind reading a short excerpt of your book so people could kind of hear a little snippet of what it is. Uh, okay. Um, this is a little excerpt from the start of chapter four. Um, a black university question mark, 1968. In 1968, Martin Luther King's prophecy that the bombs in Vietnam would, quote, explode at home, unquote, seemed to be coming true. As Tuskegee activists bore witness to the murder of student protesters on a nearby campus. Soon afterwards, the fate of their movement became bound up with the nation's reaction to King's assassination. But even before that moment arrived, Tuskegee's inflexible leadership brought matters to a head. All of a sudden, in 1968, Tuskegee's long-standing political educational paradigm was turned upside down from the inside. Those most associated with Booker T. Washington's emphasis on practical education, engineering students, took the most militant actions. And Tuskegee's military history and traditions, long a source of pride, became a source of controversy, threatening a relationship with the institution's most important sponsor, the federal government. When students spoke of making Tuskegee Institute a quote-unquote black university, their administrators knew that they meant a wide range of on-campus reforms, some of which challenged their priorities. But when the state of Alabama heard the phrase, it took it to mean revolution and sent men with rifles and bayonets to Tuskegee's campus for the second time in its history. I just had chills from that text because it just, if you put it in today, it just feels like nothing changed. And I don't, I think that's just so sad because of what so many people strive so hard to avoid and yet still you're going through this. It's wild. Wow. It is wild. I, that is, I mean, incredible. That's incredible. Thank you so much. Um, and my, I just want to ask my final question in regards to, um, well, first, what is what inspires you to do the work you do? And then what advice would you give to educators who are just in the classroom or even thinking about doing something like you are doing in terms of research and, um, you know, pursuing different careers inside of education um, in the long run? Well, I think what has, um, I think the only, the only advice I could give on, on following in my footsteps, so to speak, would be that there's something about um, my own, following my own curiosity about Black education history that's led me to 
where I am today entirely. And you could hear it in all of my answers. I mean, there's a common thread that I'm following. And I just keep pursuing it in various forums, whether it's as a student or as an administrator or, you know, whatever, the, or as an author, like I'm just really following the same thread. And, and I, I guess, you know, everybody looks at the world differently and, and has their antenna up for different aspects of it. And as a teacher, you know, there's so many different issues and challenges that you face, but every once in a while you find um, you know, there's something that you keep coming back to, a thought or an idea or something you want to investigate further. And you don't even have to get a PhD. I mean, you can, you know, the, the New York Public Library is free. You can read all the books and like teach yourself. Um, you know, the, the nice thing about a PhD program is you get help and you get guidance, but you know, you you can you can begin in the and and I began before I was a doctoral student. I was writing and reading and, and doing this investigation already. I, I had that momentum out of my own steam and my own curiosity. And, you know, you can do that too. If there's something that you want to investigate and learn more about, go ahead. Uh, you know, there's nothing stopping you. And that holding on to that spark of curiosity and learning, I think makes you a better teacher because you inevitably find ways to bring that into the classroom and bring that spirit of learning and curiosity and investigation into the classroom. And so it's that uh, staying true to that mission is what's guided me. I, I'm inspired by my colleagues who are educators at all levels, especially those who are working in the toughest conditions and not only are, you know, doing incredible work with young people, but often speaking out so powerfully um, about the kinds of changes that we need in our education system and about and boldly speaking out about uh, injustice and inequalities in our schools at all levels. I think education is really a, an amazing space because it is constrained in so many ways. There's so many problems, and yet it's also uh, different from other kinds of workplaces because there is that space. You know, once you're inside it, you can find that space to think and dream and imagine beyond those constraints. Um, so that's what gives me hope and those kind of bold truth tellers and protesters and educators are the people who I try to listen carefully to um, because I think those are the voices that um, are telling us uh, the future, the future that we need to fight for. Especially. I am married to Brian. <laughs> I am uh, so I have witnessed him um, begin begin the journey of this book eight plus years ago, and do um, take a trip to Tuskegee to do the research, but then also really delve into source other source material, other writing about the time period, and interviewing people, and visiting with Chester, and visiting with Gwen Patton, and deeply delving into. Um, like first-person stories of people who were alive and on the campus at the time and trying to bring those um, into the book and I'm just so proud of him. What do you hope that people take away from this book since you've watched yes. your husband History do this? being made from the ground up, from the bottom up, like we're so often taught history from presidents and presidents of colleges and presidents of of the United States, but we're not often taught history that is made by people on the ground. Um, and that's what 
Brian has been doing grassroots activism for 20 plus years and now I feel like he's writing about it as well. Um, thank you so much. Is there any way that people can follow you and your work? Um, you can find the Center for Educators in Schools is just nypl.org slash CES. Um, and you can follow us on Twitter at NYPL Educators. And for me, my Twitter handle is Brain and Brian. This episode was recorded a couple years ago. Dr. Brian Jones continues his work as a director at the Center for Educators in Schools at the New York Public Library. His book is available now on paperback, and you can purchase a copy wherever books are sold or borrow from your local public library. I would like to thank Dr. Brian Jones for taking the time to speak to me about his career in book. Thank you to his family and friends who also took the time to speak to me about Dr. Jones. Thanks to the Strand Bookstore for a wonderful book talk the New York Public Library System, including the Schoenberg Research Center for all the support they give to teachers like me. And last but not least, thanks to my cheerleader and supporter of the podcast, Nadella Nakobi. Music was provided by Scott Knights and Macchiato Funky. Be sure to subscribe to Hall Pass Break on iTunes, Spotify, Spreaker, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And you can follow the show on Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. The quote for this episode comes from educator, scholar, and founder of Tuskegee University, Booker T. Washington. I've learned that success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life as by the obstacles which he has had to overcome while trying to succeed. Thanks for listening.